It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls. When you watch or listen to a lot of true crime programs, you pick up on certain common cliches. There was one cliche in particular that used to really irk me. You'll have a perpetrator, usually a man, who gets busted in relation to a horrifying crime. There's overwhelming evidence against him. Maybe in some cases, he's actually been exhibiting red flags for years. And yet, his wife or kids or close friends or other loved ones... They circle the wagons. Instead of acknowledging the evidence and the likelihood of the man's guilt, they deny and spout off about how swell their guy is. It's always like, seriously? Are you kidding me? You feel a certain resentment toward the people trying to explain away a mountain of evidence pointing to a murderer. You feel like they're trying to pull a cover-up. And in some cases, they are. 
We've all heard of cases where a perpetrator's loved ones have taken direct or indirect actions to help them elude justice. That certainly does happen, but it's not always the case. In my own life, through recovering from alcoholism and reading up a bit more on psychology, I've come to realize that humans have an extraordinary capacity for self-delusion, and that while it's certainly alarming to behold, there may be more unconscious reactions at play in these kinds of situations than we think. That brings us to today's topic of conversation. How does the human brain react when faced with an overwhelming betrayal? To find out, we recently spoke to therapist and licensed clinical social worker Erin Moon Walker about a phenomenon called betrayal trauma and how that can play a role in the wake of serious criminal accusations. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, Betrayal Trauma. The reason we're talking about betrayal trauma now is, of course, because of the Delphi murders, the 2017 double homicide of teenagers Abigail Williams and Liberty German. Now, to be clear, this is a case with a lot of unknowns. The state has released some evidence against its suspect, former CVS manager Richard or Rick Allen, in the form of a probable cause affidavit. Law enforcement and Carroll County Prosecutor Nick McClelland have also indicated through comments made in the press and in court that there may be other players involved, opening the door to more charges being handed down. As it stands, there's obviously a ton we do not know. It's fair to say that law enforcement strongly believes they've got the right guy. As journalists, we do think it's important to keep an open mind on the question of Allen's guilt, until we get more information through further reporting, the pre-trial conferences, and the trial itself. But it's often tempting to take limited information and stretch it to fit certain conclusions in these highly disturbing homicide cases. We've gotten a number of emails in particular relating to Kathy Walker Allen, 
That's Richard Allen's wife. Listeners want to know whether we think she was involved in the murders. Is she one of the other actors that law enforcement is alluding to? Folks ask, how could she not have suspected him? How could she and other Delphi residents not have noticed his resemblance to the first sketch? What kind of wife wouldn't know her husband was into something so sick, something so evil? Now, for our part, we'd like to talk to Kathy Allen, too. We reached out to her for comment numerous times. We'd love to get her side of the story. She's never gotten back to us. Frankly, given the intense amount of scrutiny on this case, we can't say that we blame her. We do know that Kathy and Richard Allen have been married for many years. They signed their marriage certificate on November 30th, 1991. They were both 19 then. Richard had attended North Miami High School. Kathy had attended Peru High School nearby. They wed in Peru, Indiana. We've gotten a sense that Allen's arrest has hit Kathy hard. A letter that Allen wrote from jail to the court indicated that his wife had to flee their home in Delphi and her job at a veterinary office for her own safety. Various media sources reported that at the November pretrial hearing, Allen mouthed, I love you, to Kathy and his mom, and that both women broke down weeping subsequently. We may have been sitting right near her, but we didn't see that. Still, Allen's defense attorneys, Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rosie, have said that Kathy is standing by her husband. After that pretrial conference, Baldwin told the press, They love each other, and she fully supports him, but it is devastating. She's scared. She thankfully is in a little bit better place than she was a month ago, but this is all new to them. Naturally, retaining a supportive spouse is a good look for anybody's client when they're facing heinous charges. If Kathy up and left Allen, we doubt the defense would advertise that. But anyways, now that you've gotten this background, let's dive into the subject at hand, betrayal trauma. This is a concept first spearheaded by Dr. Jennifer Freyd, a well-known researcher and professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. It's a type of trauma that occurs when one is victimized by a trusted person or institution, one that the victim relies on in some fundamental way. Now, as you listen to our talk with therapist and licensed clinical social worker Aaron Moon Walker, please keep in mind that we're not diagnosing anyone or drawing any conclusions. As we said, we don't know enough to do that in this case, but we still felt that Aaron's insights on betrayal trauma could be helpful regarding our coverage of the Delphi murders and true crime cases in general. So I am a licensed clinical social worker. So I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in social work. Um, I was also a special education advocate and still do a little bit of advocacy on the side, which is actually how I first encountered this concept of betrayal trauma through advocacy. But I currently primarily see people in individual therapy right now, and I'm studying to specialize in complex trauma. And so I think for a lot of our readers, the concept of betrayal trauma may be an unfamiliar one. Uh, could you explain what, you know, your sort of your understanding of that is and, and sort of what it looks like, what it means? Sure. So betrayal trauma theory basically states that the bigger the betrayal that's involved in, in a traumatic event um, or series of traumatic events, 
the bigger the impact is in terms of processing the trauma. So we can use an example like if someone were to break into your home and steal all of your belongings, that would be difficult for you to process. You may have some difficult memories to contend with, but if you were to find out that the person who broke into your home was someone close to you, like your best friend or a family member, we're going to see that degree of betrayal increase. And then even the storage and retrieval of those memories become a lot more complicated. Um, we may see, or I guess we may have a higher risk of experiencing things like denial or even something called betrayal blindness, which is a concept talked about in betrayal trauma research, which is an inability or an unawareness that a betrayal has even occurred. You may have difficulty even acknowledging that you've been betrayed. And, and fundamentally, why is that? Why can the brain sometimes react in such ways that it, it kind of throws up shields like denial, betrayal, blindness, basically kind of almost uh, pretending like it didn't happen in a way? What, what, what about our human brains, which are, of course, so complicated and hard to understand sometimes? You know, why would it do something so that's so on the surface sounds so unhelpful? So two big things to talk about there. One is that our brains are wire, wired for survival. We tend to react very instinctively to things. I know I heard uh, one specialist say one day that we're basically feeling creatures who occasionally think, not thinking creatures who occasionally feel. So a lot of our behaviors and our attitudes, our beliefs are based on survival mechanism. So I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But I also wanted to talk about implicit memory. And one of my favorite examples of getting to the root of implicit memory or trying to understand what that idea is, is tell me what you do, what the first thing is that you do when you walk into a room. Look around. So you look around, Okay. Now, how might that change if it's dark in the room? You might be kind of squinting or maybe you shine a flashlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the first things that we do, it's so basic and it's so hardwired, is we assess for light. So we do that even before we look into the room to see what's in the room. And then we've also developed this mechanism for seeing people, that is, where your hand may just instinctively come up and hit a light switch, right? Right. So as you're walking around your home or your apartment, you are not going from room to room thinking, where is this light switch? I know it's around here somewhere. Um, I'm going to look for it. These are not conscious thoughts. Um, Instead, you're accessing procedural memory, these automatic habits that help you survive and that have stored themselves outside of your conscious awareness. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah, it's it's not that you're necessarily directly thinking about it, that is to say, but it's it's in there. Yes, yes, exactly. So relationships and the way we interact with our loved ones are very similar in that we develop a lot of unconscious habits in how we relate to them. And the more familiar we are with them, the more likely we are to have these unconscious habits. 
just like when you go to your friend's apartments and you may not be as familiar with them, you may more consciously be processing how to find a light switch. And this is why it's a little bit easier for us to look at a case and look at a suspect and their family and say, I don't understand why they're having a hard time seeing what we're seeing. And it's mostly because they're very familiar with that person. They're very familiar with that, that person's lives, their lives with that person. There's a lot more information going into that processing and a lot more unconscious habits that they've built together. Essentially, a lot more implicit memory. And the relationships are usually a lot more dependent. They're a lot more dependent upon each other for survival. Let's pause here and take a break to hear from our sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That makes sense. I mean, as far as true crime goes, when we're kind of, you know, people, you know, who are outsiders making assumptions about a person or a family in regard to someone who's been accused of a heinous crime, it sounds mm-hmm. like, I mean, would you say that maybe some more empathy 
is is needed and maybe thinking about well how would i feel if if my father husband whatnot was um accused of something so heinous and maybe i would be in shock or in denial as well is that is that fair to say maybe we could all inject a bit more empathy into this situation absolutely I think we can call upon relationships that we've had where we have a friend or a family member who's in an abusive relationship, for example, and you're having a hard time understanding why they're not leaving the relationship. Or you're having a hard time understanding your friend or family member is struggling with substance misuse or alcohol misuse. It's difficult to look at people in repetitive patterns of behavior or long-term relationships that may or may not be difficult with them and see those situations with, um, I guess, objectivity. And I think sometimes we react to our own helplessness um, looking at those situations by putting even more responsibility on those people to get out of those situations or to resolve the, the dilemma at hand. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I guess my, my follow-up question for, for people who may know somebody who's in a situation like this, where they're in denial, experiencing betrayal trauma, or in one of those sort of fixed patterns, what is a helpful thing that you can do for somebody that you know who is in a situation like that? Let them know that you care about them. First and foremost, provide them the safety that they may be lacking in your relationship with them and remind them of how strong they are, how important they are. What we don't want to do is second guess someone's thinking and second guess their ability to make decisions. Um, We want to show them all the things that they're doing well and reinforce those capacities. And like you said, take some extra time to be extra empathetic with them. In terms of betrayal trauma specifically is there an out of it like is it is this something that people kind of can come back from and see a situation for what it really is later on if they if they undergo this or or is that is that rare i guess you know how can people work through this or what is like the sort of prognosis for it so i think it it really depends on the betrayal the amount of damage that was done by the betrayal also how old the person was when they experienced it. Because what we see is, for instance, with kids, if their caregivers were the ones who perpetrated the abuse, it's going to be really, really difficult for the kids to see that abuse. That's why some victims of childhood trauma or survivors, I should say, aren't able to even see abuse until they have kids themselves. But otherwise, I mean, in other instances, people may be able to see betrayal pretty instantly. They may just be dealing with some anger and some grief over what happened. So it really, it really just depends. But the greater the betrayal or the greater the trauma, the more I would advise someone to see a licensed professional to work through that. One thing that we often see in treating someone in denial of a major trauma is that we need to just take our time and make sure they're able to keep themselves safe 
before they really start to process what happened to them. Because once they start turning toward it, you know, trauma doesn't like to be seen. It likes to hide itself from us. And once they start turning toward it, they they may just have a huge grieving process on their hands that really destabilizes them or potentially destabilizes them. And then we have different, different symptoms that we may be working with um, when that happens. Are, are some people more susceptible to betrayal trauma? Children who suffer betrayal trauma, would they be more likely to then find themselves in a situation later on where it happens again? Or is is it, or, you know, kind of repeating some of the same patterns that they had as children? Or is there just not enough information on this to kind of bear that out? So... I should say everyone is susceptible to betrayal trauma. Even, you know, anybody who belongs to an institution or has to deal with an institution, anybody who goes to a school, for example, could be susceptible to betrayal. But children are a lot more likely to experience betrayal blindness. And if you experience trauma as a child, especially during critical periods of development, there is a higher likelihood that it will impact the rest of your life, your ability to relate to others, your ability to regulate emotionally, your ability to even think about yourself realistically and have a good relationship with yourself. And sometimes so much of unlocking that childhood trauma is built around the betrayal blindness that's occurred around that original trauma. One thing I thought was really interesting, you mentioned the role of institutions in this. So from some of the research that you sent us, it seems like betrayal trauma is not just necessarily inflicted on an indi- by an individual doing something to betray you, but it can be an, an entire institution. Can you, can you speak more to that? Yeah. So I find this really fascinating because, you know, it's easy for us to recognize that our caregivers, that we have a very dependent relationship when it comes to our caregivers growing up, but we also don't realize that we have very dependent relationships with the institutions that we patronize or belong to. For instance, the students at, at Purdue are very dependent upon Purdue to provide them with care and a safe environment in which they can live and learn. So this idea of institutional betrayal trauma not only comes from an institution potentially letting down the people who depend on it, but also if those people come forward and say, hey, I was mistreated at your institution or something happened to me um, while patronizing it, and that institution invalidates them or says something that makes the original trauma even worse, that would be an example of institutional betrayal trauma. So we actually, there's been a case in the news here recently, I think at least about a couple of students who were sexually assaulted, Purdue students, and the way Purdue handled that was was very poor to the point where I know at least one student brought legal action accusing Purdue of wrongdoing. But that's a classic form of institutional betrayal trauma 
where a student experiences sexual assault, they come forward, and then the institution really handles it poorly and potentially compounds the trauma and the trauma processing and, you know, later on, the trauma treatment that the therapist and the client have to do together. It's all been exacerbated because that institution didn't help the person really be safe again or make sense out of what happened to them. A quick side note on that case. Purdue University is a major public university in West Lafayette, not terribly far from Delphi. In September 2022, WBAA reporter Benjamin Thorpe reported that a jury ruled that the university had, quote, violated due process and treated a student differently because she was a woman after she came forward with assault allegations against a fraternity member. And I'm curious, in in a situation with an institution like that, would other students who are not necessarily involved in the direct situation involving the sexual assaults, would they also be susceptible to betrayal trauma if, say, they, you know, very much had faith in their school and then when they find out something like this happened, that trust is lost? Or are they less susceptible to that? Yes, they're absolutely susceptible to it. Also, employees of the institution are susceptible to it. All of our coworkers at our jobs are susceptible to being blind to any betrayal we may encounter with our employer. But yes, there is, I think it came out of research on the Holocaust. It's a victim-perpetrator-bystander model where we examine, I guess, all the different things that can occur in the dynamics in that triad. And one thing that we've noticed is that for a bystander, all a perpetrator asks them to do is nothing. That's a point that psychiatrist and trauma researcher Judith Herman makes in her book about trauma and recovery, that it's actually so much easier to join with the perpetrator when we learn about an abuse than it is to join with the victim because there's so much less for us to do and so much less for us to acknowledge. So your question going back to the Purdue student, I mean, all they have to do to join with the perpetrator of the institutional betrayal trauma is to say, you know, nothing essentially and go on living their lives. Whereas if they were to join with the victim, they might be going through a huge mindset shift that could lead all the way to, you know, them leaving the school, them feeling really unsafe at school, them having to deal with chronic anger or anxiety. Sometimes it feels like a lot to ask someone to really acknowledge the abuse that we have suffered as survivors or as victims. And, And to go back to more of the individualized mode of this trauma and how it occurs, in terms of how this can apply to say, you know, a long-term romantic relationship. It's, it's really, I think fundamentally that when the public assumes that spouses know everything about one another always and know something's bad or going on, you know, it it seems like uh, betrayal trauma can really play a role in here about maybe having a bit more understanding that that is not always the case. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. It's, I think it's also important for the public to remember that when we learn about a murder suspect, 
I mean, that may be the only thing we know about this person is that they are a suspect in a murder. Their family members and their friends, on the other hand, know so much more about them. So if every concept in our brain is organized into its own network, right? Like your concept for dog is organized into its own network in your brain. And then if you're a vet, you're going to have maybe a bigger dog network or more complex dog network. That was the example provided to me by someone trained in neuroscience who provided me with some continuing education. A person who is married to a murder suspect would, we would think, have a lot more in their brain related to this person, have a lot more knowledge of them that would interfere you would think just making a logical conclusion with their ability to just see them as a murder suspect. And that's a long winded answer, but, <laughs> but, but uh, they've had so many more years to make memories, so many more interactions with them. Not only that, but I'm trying to avoid being very direct, but, I look at, you know, the investigation and how it unfolded. And there was a lot of feedback, or I could see where there would be a lot of feedback that would tell me that my my partner and myself were innocent because they weren't getting arrested, right? Mm-hmm. If they had talked to the police, that would also be some information that would contradict any suspicions that I might have. That's, that's a little more speculative, but that, that's also something I thought about just as a community member. Yes. And, and when, you know, I've, I've talked about this on the show, when you have a situation where people in outside the Delphi community, outside that area of Carroll County have said things like, how could no one have known the sketches were out there? And what we say to that is, first of all, Mr. Allen is certainly presumed innocent until he's proven guilty. Second Mm -hmm. of all, you know, I really think we live in a we would be living in a very deeply unhealthy society if looking at a subjective sketch, which is an artist's rendering of what a witness saw and is very general, frankly, in some ways. You know, making the leap and catapulting from that to accusing your local CVS manager of homicide, you know, that's paranoia, you know, because it it is just a sketch. It's not it's not very concrete. And so when people are assuming, you know, how could anyone know this? How could his wife not know this? It just seems like they're asking for us to be living in a significantly more paranoid society where people are just assuming the worst about one another, which I would think behaviorally is not how humans should, you know, tend to act with people they know. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. I'll just add here that it's totally understandable that some reacted with frustration in the wake of the news of Alan's arrest. The idea that the possible perpetrator could be getting to live his life after ending two young lives is maddening. So we're not criticizing anyone for feeling frustrated and angry or for initially having a what-the-heck moment after finding out that the new suspected perpetrator interacted with the public daily at CVS and was even photographed literally standing in front of a sketch. We had the same reaction. 
We're just trying to say that now that the initial shock has worn off, that directing our frustration at Delphi residents or Alan's family members, or taking things a step further and assuming that the lack of suspicion against Alan indicates a Delphi conspiracy or complicity on the part of his family members is likely unhelpful. Let's not forget, those sketches were vague and contradictory, and the video is quite blurry. Beyond that, there was only so much help they would give. The key thing with the video is likely going to be that it captured an approximation of the man's outfit. You can stare at it all you want, but it's easy to see a lot of different faces in those pixels. Alan does bear a resemblance to the first sketch. Still, we don't think it's too odd that no one in his family or locally reported a seemingly law-abiding man for bearing a faint resemblance to a vague drawing that was, in 2019, supplanted by yet another vague drawing. Next, we asked Aaron how people can bounce back from denial or betrayal blindness. The only information that I'm aware of that helps with kind of trajectory is the clearer the evidence I've been told. Like the clearer the betrayal, the clearer the proof that it actually happened, um, the more likely they are to be able to acknowledge it. But that doesn't mean that the, the human mind still doesn't have you know, it's ways around that. Yeah. And is is it fair to say that somebody being in denial or, or dealing with betrayal blindness does not mean that that person is a bad person or that they're covering up for someone necessarily? That it is, it is sort of an inherently human response to this level of trauma. Yes. Betrayal blindness, to my knowledge, what I've learned about it really came from this understanding of an implicit process. So something that goes on outside of our conscious awareness, something that probably takes place more in the emotional centers of our mind, where we don't have a lot of conscious thought, right? You can't talk about something you don't know anything about. And people don't understand that they are being blind to betrayal, oftentimes. So how could they acknowledge it? How could they do anything different with it? There are some cases, right, where people will say something over, like, well, I'm not going to deal with it. It's not my problem. That would be a more explicit form of betrayal blindness. But when we, when we look at intimate relationships and relationships and when, where there's um, higher dependency for survival, we see a lot more implicit processes going on there. Let's take a second here to listen to a word from our sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. In any case, if, if more information comes out and it's more apparent that people were you know, aware of things, then that's a different situation, obviously. But I do think it's really important to have these discussions about how our minds can be a little bit more a little bit more tricky than we we I think people have this comfort theory that they essentially you know we're very much in control of what we think and we can kind of just power through things but mm-hmm. you know trauma is trauma and it's it's messy and it's not necessarily very logical I loved what you said about we're feeling animals that think occasionally <laughs> Because I think, you know, that's hard for some people to accept. I guess as a therapist, when you're seeing responses that are kind of a bit blamey towards an accused perpetrator's family, where do you think that stems from in our in our psyche? Where does that impulse to kind of make those negative assumptions about people close to the accused criminal? Is that a coping mechanism? Well, I mean, we absolutely deal with uncomfortable or dangerous things by trying to make sense out of them, by trying to make them more predictable. But Brene Brown has a great little cartoon. It's like two or three minutes long online. And she talks about how blame is the discharge of, com- of discomfort and pain. So we tend to look for someone to blame when we are suffering. So we, we see this horrible situation with these, these two murdered girls and all this pain for their families and the communities. And that's hurtful to us. And we, we feel for them. And then when, you know, somebody comes up that is being accused of it, maybe we even look to expand the blame beyond them and look at people around them as well. Is that fair to say? Right. Right. And it's also this process of how could we prevent this from happening again? Who do we hold accountable I almost wonder if part of it, too, is is fear in our own lives. If we're kind of putting ourselves in that situation and we're thinking, could someone I know be pulling the wool over my eyes to that extent? And we ha- we'd be like, no, no, no. I would I would know if my husband or my brother or my father or, you know, s- someone I knew was doing something bad. I would never I would never be tricked in such a way. Somebody close to this person must have known. I almost wonder if it's a level of trying to protect ourselves from the possibility that something like that could happen to us. That could very much be the case. And this is kind of a side issue, but I also wonder about the degree of the betrayal felt by the citizens in Delphi and the people who frequented the CVS as they're considering 
who the suspect is and what role he played in their lives. And I think about the betrayal that we've all experienced just in Abby and Libby's death. Something seems so inherently traumatizing about these two young girls who are just out for a fun time on a bridge in broad daylight, not coming home. Like there seems something so wrong about that. And I think that is part of the reason why their story has resonated with so many people. It is, it's a bit of a betrayal to the idea that, you know, these two girls, they're in middle school, they're best friends. They should be able to go hang out and and not, and have the story not end in such a horrifying way. Exactly. And we depended on someone who was around us to keep us safe. We don't know exactly who that person is. We haven't had that confirmed yet, but it was someone who was walking among us. And I know for me personally, um, I grew up and I live in counties surrounding Carroll County and it changed the way that I walk in the woods. It changed the way that I feel in the woods. I wouldn't let my preteen and teenage daughters go into the woods alone because of that. I'm sure, I'm sure there are many other community members who feel the same way, especially closer to Delphi. For people in Delphi and in the surrounding area who may be dealing with some of this kind of, I would say it's almost like an institutional trauma because it's, it's, you're losing trust in society. You're losing trust in, you know, this person that you may have interacted in a store with many times is now accused of these heinous things. For people who are maybe struggling with those feelings or, or feelings of, you know, distrust now, what recommendations would you make for people in that boat, I guess? I think a good way to deal with distrust is to focus on what you do trust and what does help you feel safe. It's helpful to acknowledge the other feelings that come up with distrust, like anger, fear, and process those and validate those. And also when the time is right, and sometimes that's never, um, also process the fact that everybody's doing the best that they can. And unfortunately, that doesn't always lead to the best outcomes for us or for others. Absolutely. And and for members of the community that's sort of grown up, that's grown up around the Delphi case that, you know, I think most people in this community care deeply about the case and about Abby and Libby and there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of energy around that anger and I don't want to malign anybody. And and I think, you know, sometimes that anger may lead people to cast blame around. And what would you say to people who are doing that, I guess, and maybe how they can better direct some of those valid feelings around this case? One thing that's helpful to do when we have a lot of anger, especially if it's directed towards someone is to remember that anger is a secondary emotion and that it tends to cover up pain. And I think um, anger is very protective. It helps to activate us so that we can take care of danger and address threats, sure. But right now, I think what we need to be doing is sitting with our pain and acknowledging it and maybe going through that grieving process maybe not taking it out on um, people we have no reason to believe knew any better. And that's coming from me as a community member. Absolutely. 
Um, well, listen, we kind of breezed through all my questions. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you think it's important for people to keep in mind? I think this case is supposed to be disturbing. I think it's okay that it disturbs us. I think it's okay that it angers us and that we we grieve for them and that we also become frustrated with the process and sometimes become anxious about the legal proceedings. I think that's all okay, but I think we have to sit with those feelings a little bit more and not necessarily lash out at others or try to hold other people accountable for the way that we feel. I think it's maybe a good time to just pause and reflect. As we said, we still don't have a ton of information to come to concrete conclusions on the Delphi case. If Alan turns out to be factually innocent, then his wife's steadfastness is not a symptom of betrayal trauma. It's just the story of a woman who's stuck by a loved one who was wrongly accused. If Alan turns out to be guilty, it's always possible that some people in his life were aware of disturbing or illegal things he was up to. So far, we've heard no indication of that from sources close to the investigation. Therefore, we think it's very important to encourage everybody to not make any assumptions on that front. We feel this conversation about betrayal trauma is important because it encourages a healthy amount of empathy and skepticism. Just because someone is strongly defending a loved one who did bad things does not mean that they themselves are bad. Trauma could be short-circuiting their capacity to think and act rationally. On the other hand, just because a seemingly nice and law-abiding person stands by a loved one who is accused of awful crimes does not mean that they are correct and their loved one is innocent. Perhaps we ought to acknowledge that their support could be an unconscious and automatic move, as reflexive as the blink of an eye. Thanks to Erin for her insights and for the great conversation. Also thanks to the Danville Public Library for research assistance. We'll link to the video on blame from a talk from Dr. Brene Brown in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.